And let me invite you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. You'll find our uh, scripture text in the uh, uh, bulletin handout. Uh, we're reading Ecclesiastes 8, starting in verse 10 through chapter 9, verse 1. I know I say this a lot, but it bears some repeating. You know, the section divisions that you find in our Bibles, the paragraphs or chapter breaks and so on, those are not there in the original text. They were added later on in different translations and Bible editions. And you know, sometimes those section breaks are helpful. Sometimes they're not. And uh, I'm kind of going against the uh, section break in the ESV. Um, well, part of the issue there is that Ecclesiastes is a very difficult book to outline, to divide into paragraphs. The sections are not always very clear-cut. And so I feel like uh, the best place to end our scripture reading is chapter 9, verse 1. That falls in the middle of a section in the ESV translation if you're looking in a printed copy of the Bible. Um, but I think that verse really wraps up the section that is right in front of it. So that's, if you were wondering why I divided it the way I did, that's the reason. Let's turn to our scripture reading, Ecclesiastes chapter 8, starting in verse 10, reading through chapter 9, verse 1. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. Please pray with me as we turn to our time of study of God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are um, like so many things in uh, this particular book of Scripture, uh, mysterious, uh, at times Hard to understand, hard to discern uh, what uh, the uh, this writer is trying to tell us. So, Lord, we pray that you would grant uh, clarity, uh, grant uh, me clarity of expression, grant all of us uh, clear minds to understand your word, and Lord, grant us receptive hearts to uh, seek to apply it to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe it was the early church father, Augustine, who once uh, said, I preach myself. 
And that's kind of a curious statement. I preach myself. Because if you read Augustine's sermons, it's obvious that he preached the Bible. I think he just meant that his sermons were unavoidably uh, personal for him. He threw himself into his sermons, you could say. So he, he read the Bible and he applied it to his own life, his own experience, and then he used that uh, to apply to the Bible to his congregation as he preached. Or as he put it a little differently elsewhere, he said, what I live by, I impart. So he tried to pass on those truths of the Bible that he knew were helpful in his own Christian life. fact of the matter is sermons are not these uh, generic, one-size-fits-all things. They are very specific and very particular. A sermon, it's a very unique combination of uh, this particular preacher speaking about this particular Bible passage to this particular congregation at this particular moment in time. And so it's unavoidable that uh, any sermon is going to reflect the preacher at least a little bit Sermons are just unique and personal. So I'm preaching Ecclesiastes 8, verse 10 through chapter 9, verse 1. That's what I'm preaching on today. But I'm also preaching myself. Today's sermon is going to be a very personal one for me. As I studied and I pondered over this passage this week, I realized just how very close to home it hit for me. So let me tell you a little bit about my experience growing up in a Christian household. As far as I can tell, I've never had any really serious struggles uh, you know, doubting the existence of God or something like that, the way that some people do. Uh, for some people, that is the big question, you know, does God exist? I never seriously questioned whether or not God was there. You know, the idea of this amazing world that we live in somehow spontaneously coming into existence out of purely natural processes, that's just too far-fetched for me to take seriously. So for me, it was never hard to believe that God was there. What I often found hard, what I often struggled with, was more of the question of, now how do I know that He's there? What kind of absolute proof is there that he exists. It wasn't really that I didn't think he existed. I just found it hard to explain or to justify why it was that I thought he did. I mean, did I just believe that God existed because my parents did? Did I just believe it because, you know, it made me feel a little better about life? Is it just a crutch? Is it a drug, as some have claimed? How can we know that God exists, or how can we know that anything exists at all, or how can we know anything about anything at all? If you want to learn a new word, some of you, uh, this is what philosophers call epistemology, or the study of knowing. And uh, in college, I remember getting involved in all sorts of discussions, really you could call them debates or arguments, (laughs) about the existence of God, and those were the sorts of things that raised this issue for me. You know, how could I prove that God existed, that Christianity was true to these various friends and acquaintances and roommates and and so on? 
Uh, apparently, I thought it was my job somehow to prove to skeptics that God existed. I uh, can't say that I had a lot of success in that, but uh, at least as far as I know. And, and at times, it makes me think, maybe I should have gotten a degree in philosophy. You know, I didn't. But I remember once uh, getting involved in it. It was a brief discussion with uh, the girlfriend of a friend of mine. And she had studied philosophy somewhere. I think she had a degree in it. And I don't remember much of the conversation, except uh, pretty early on into it, she just kind of shook her head at me and said, oh my gosh, you sound just like Thomas Aquinas. Well, (laughs) Aquinas was a medieval theologian. He's known for having developed a number of classic arguments or proofs for the existence of God. I hadn't read much Thomas Aquinas uh, at the time. I still haven't, actually. And I didn't stop to ask her what she meant because it was clear that this was some kind of, I guess, insult or criticism. She didn't think it was cool that I sounded like Thomas Aquinas, so it wasn't meant as a compliment. And that was about the point in the conversation where it started to come to a very rapid end. Anyway, maybe I should have taken that as a sign that I should have studied more philosophy. Not everyone gets as worked up as I did about these sorts of issues, you know, like trying to articulate an argument for the existence of God. And it's perfectly fine if other people don't get worked up by that. But for me, that was a question that always nagged at me. How do we know that God exists? How can we prove that? How can we be certain about it? Well, I didn't go on to study uh, philosophy, studied Bible, studied theology. And over time, a lot of those questions, they, they did kind of resolve themselves. The more I learned about the Bible, the more I learned about theology. I did learn, for one thing, that it's not my job to find that silver bullet that is guaranteed to turn any skeptic into a believer. In other words, I learned that I'm not the Holy Spirit. (laughs) He's the one who has to open a person's eyes, open their heart to trust in God. That was very helpful. That was very freeing for me. You're all probably just kind of chuckling like, it took you how long to figure that out? Uh, Well, it took me longer than it should have, maybe. Anyway, all these struggles with epistemology, with knowing, they came back to me this past week as I was reading our passage, and also as I found myself reading a book by a Christian philosopher. I think I found my intellectual twin, because this philosopher's experience, it sounded so similar to my own. This is what she wrote. I grew up in a home and a church that taught the Bible faithfully, so I can never remember a time when I didn't have a solid concept of God. I knew what I was supposed to know about God. That's why, for me, the live question has always been about how we know. What sense did it make even to talk about God, it seemed, if I didn't have a satisfactory answer about knowing? Now, uh, those of you who know me well, uh, you've heard a lot of my sermons, you, you'll know that I, I often begin sermons, or I'll often use in sermons, a little excerpt that starts out like that. You know, I grew up in a Bible-believing church, and, and then usually it's about how the author went on to talk about they wound up rejecting their faith, becoming an unbeliever, turning their back on Christianity. So it's usually some sort of spiritual train wreck story that follows. That's not what happened with this writer. 
She remained a believer. She's a professor of philosophy at a Christian college. In, uh, in fact, she's a specialist in epistemology, the study of how do we know what we know. And she believes more strongly in God than ever before. But what she said, it resonated with me so strongly because her questions weren't about whether God exists or not. Her questions were about knowing. What do we know? How do we know it? And above all, how do we know about God? And she pointed out this fascinating thing that, again, if I'd studied philosophy, maybe I would have known this already. Uh, But she pointed out that our Western culture and Western philosophy, it tends to struggle with these questions of epistemology, and it has this inherent tendency towards skepticism, believing that we don't or that we can't know anything. Here's how she put it in this book I was reading. I had questions not only about knowing God, I also had questions about knowing anything. I shared with all Westerners a Greek heritage. If ancient Greece was the cradle of Western civilization, I think it is fair to say that skepticism was the blanket the baby came wrapped in. How can we be sure that we know anything at all? So what she's saying there is that uh, for most of us, uh, maybe all of us, as people who grew up culturally as Westerners, you know, as opposed to the cultures of Africa or the East, whether it's Asia or the Middle East, we're raised in, in a culture, in a worldview that has this natural inclination towards philosophical skepticism. That's where the current is taking us, naturally. It's like we're born with this. Now, she's a professor of philosophy, and she's able to sketch out this over the history of Western philosophy and Even if I had read all that stuff myself, I wouldn't try to sketch it out for you. Now, uh, you can read her book or any number of other books that do that if you're curious. But it's just important to, to be aware that this creates this fundamental tension for Westerners, people like us, who grow up in the Christian community. Because the church is supposed to be a believing community, not a skeptical community. Right? You know, don't be a doubting Thomas. All that stuff. The Bible calls us to believe and to trust in God, but our cultural upbringing calls us to skepticism and to mistrust. That's an accident waiting to happen, uh, especially for Western Christians. And so this philosopher went on to talk about how this tension affected her very seriously growing up. Said It can be painful to harbor doubts, especially when you are surrounded, as I was, by a community of dear people whom I felt I would disappoint if I told them. Plus, it seemed that my doubts discredited my claim to know God. Assurance, many believers feel, is a sign of the reality of our being in right relationship with God. I concluded that absence of assurance meant that I was not in a right relationship with God. I felt out of step with others. I felt out of step with myself. And, of course, I surmised that my doubts didn't exactly make God happy either. I needed for my own well-being to deal with the question of knowing. For me, 
Figuring out knowing was the crucial missing link. I couldn't settle down to thinking about God, and I couldn't benefit from thinking about God until I had addressed the question of knowing. But in dealing with it, I found a double payoff. Knowing knowing and knowing God. Well, this all comes together in the book of Ecclesiastes for us this week, which has so much to say about what we know and what we don't know and how we know the things that we know. In so many ways, Ecclesiastes is a book about epistemology, and our passage today gets to this. So, for one thing, our text today, it talks about the limits of our knowledge. It tells us what we don't know. Uh, And above all, you find that in chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. Look at them. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out, even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Three times there it says that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. That means he can't figure it out. He can't comprehend everything there is about it. Now, that doesn't mean that he can't figure out anything at all. He does understand some things, the preacher does, But he can't get that comprehensive understanding of everything in the cosmos. And he finds that frustrating. He goes on in chapter 9, verse 1, to say something that can sound a little confusing. Again, he's talking about things that we don't know. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hands of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. Okay. Uh, What does it mean when it says that man does not know whether love or hate are before him? Some people will read that and they'll think that it's saying, well, it means you can't know whether God loves you or not or whether he's angry with you, you know, hates us, so to speak. That is not what it's saying. (laughs) If you take anything away from this sermon, know that. It's not saying that. The Bible is very clear that we can be assured of God's love for us. When this verse says that man does not know whether love or hate await him, it's talking about human relationships. Uh, If you're able to look just a few verses later, in verse 6 of chapter 9, it's talking there about those who have died, the deceased. It says, Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. It's talking about human love and human hate and human envy, love and hate for other people. So when chapter 9 verse 1 says that man does not know whether love or hate are in store for him, it's just saying that you can't know in advance whether your life is going to be marked by harmonious, friendly relationships with other people, love, or instead by strife and enmity or hate. 
you don't know how other people are going to treat you. You don't know how well you're going to be liked. So there's another limitation to our knowledge. There's something else that we don't know. We can't understand everything under heaven. We can't even know in advance if we are going to enjoy a lot of good, positive relationships with other people or whether we're going to live a life that has more conflict and negativity and opposition and that sort of thing. We want to know these things, right? But it's part of our limitation as finite creatures that we can't. And very important that we have proper expectations here. We need to not be perfectionists uh, when it comes to how much we can know. You know, if you're demanding perfection, sound like Mary Perry for a second. We're looking for absolute perfection here. Uh, If you're demanding perfection, total, comprehensive, perfect understanding of everything, you will never be satisfied with what you can know. In my first congregation, uh, there was a guy who was building his own house. Uh, they were living in it while he was working on it, so you know, there's always stuff, machinery, tools lying around. And he did great work. The house was coming along just fine. The problem was he was a perfectionist. And so while you, know, you or I might have gone in there and been very impressed with you know, the wing that he's built and the living room and the lights and whatever else, you thought, wow, nice house. Keep it up, man. He was always seeing the little things that hadn't turned out right. Little angle in the door frame that was just slightly off. Things that weren't perfectly aligned. A little gap between the crown molding and the, the ceiling. And he admitted that he was just he was never able to just sit still and be happy in his house. Because he was always noticing those little imperfections. It drove him crazy. We must not be that way when it comes to our knowledge of the world. We can't expect absolutely perfect, complete knowledge of everything. No one's capable of that. Chapter 8, verse 17 says that even if a wise man who knows a lot... (laughs) Even if he claims to you know, comprehend everything totally, it's not true. Don't believe that guy who claims to know it all. There are limits to our knowledge, and that's humbling. Our text is uh, teaching us that. At the same time, we should expect to understand some things. We aren't left in total ignorance here. We may not be know-it-alls, But we're not know-nothings either. You know, that's the claim of agnosticism, that we can't really know anything for sure. But of course, uh, that's a philosophy that implodes on itself immediately. You know, agnosticism is really saying, we know for certain that we can't know anything for certain. We know this one thing, which is that we can't know anything. Uh, philosophically, that's incoherent. It's self-contradictory. There are things that we can know. There are objective truths revealed by God. So we can be a know-something instead of a know-nothing or a know-it-all. We can be a know-something. 
And we can know that some things are objectively good and are objectively worth pursuing. And in our text, pursuing a relationship with the Lord is one of those things. It's worth pursuing regardless of whether or not it makes life better for us, regardless of whether or not we get some tangible thing out of it in return or we get some payoff for it. Our text, it points this out. There are God-fearing people out there, genuine believers, who have to endure miserable circumstances. Look at uh, verse 14 of chapter 8. There's a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. There are good people, righteous people, godly people. Life should go well for them, but it hasn't. And from a human perspective, you know, it doesn't make sense. We think you know, these people ought to be blessed. They ought to be rewarded for you know, their kindness, their generosity, their righteousness, but they're not. And then there's the opposite phenomenon of these wicked people, and their lives go great. It's there in verse 14, but it's also already in verses 10 and 11. I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. These people are evil, and they've gotten away with it. No punishment coming to them. And in fact, people praise them. Yeah, talk about them like they're these wonderful people. Who can explain why this happens? It's like there's no clear benefit to acting righteously. There's no disincentive to acting wickedly. So, you know, why be good then? Raises that question. Preacher can't explain why this happens. But here's one thing he knows. He still knows objectively that it's better to act righteously. Even if there's no payoff in it, even if there's no reward, you should be good, you should act righteously, because that's objectively good. And he says this in verses 12 and 13, chapter 8. Look at it. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. A person should have reverence for God and should pursue a relationship with him, regardless of what kinds of you know, benefits you might get with that. I mean, think about it. We've seen people who pursue relationships with other people strictly for what they can get out of them. We call that selfish. <laughs> we call those people users and manipulators. I mean, of course, you know, we get some kind of satisfaction from our relationships with others, from our friendships, and so on. But we also contribute something back. We also make sacrifices for those relationships. It's not just about what we get out of them. We're still friends with people. Even when they irritate us, or when they're acting badly, or... We're not getting anything from them. 
when we're the ones who have to sacrifice for them, we're still friends with them. We still have that relationship. We should follow God not just be, not in order to get something out of it. I mean, it is the greatest of all blessings. There's no question about that. But that can't be the only motivation for the Christian life. That was the whole debate between uh, Satan and the Lord in the book of Job, wasn't it? Satan told God, yeah, Job, he just follows you because you've made his life so wonderful. He only follows you out of his own self-interest. Make his life hard and then see how loyal he is to you. Well, the Lord allowed his life to be made hard. And lo and behold, Job remained faithful to God. We can't know everything, but we can know God. We can really know him, and we can know that a relationship with him is worth pursuing regardless of whether it makes our lives more pleasant or more difficult. And in the end, it's going to do both for you. It will make your life harder and more difficult because it requires sacrifice and it requires cross-bearing. It will also make your life unbelievably fulfilling and joyful. And the preacher doesn't go on at length about this, but he gets to it very briefly in verse 15, chapter 8. And I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. You know, a lot of people are seeking happiness when they really should be seeking joy. That is something deeper, and it's more lasting, it's more satisfying than happiness. And it only comes from knowing God. As God's children, we can know with confidence that we are in God's hands. I want you to look at chapter 9, verse 1 again. There's that mysterious part uh, in it. All this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise in their deeds are in the hand of God, whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. Look at that very carefully. You can't know everything. You can't know infallibly whether your relationships with others are going to be characterized by love or by hate. But you can know that you're in the hand of God. And that counts for a lot. That counts for everything, actually. Maybe you can't know as much as you would like to know with certainty, but you can know some things with confidence. You can know God with confidence. You can be confident that he holds you in his hand. This Christian philosopher that I mentioned earlier she makes the point that there is a huge difference philosophically, biblically, theologically, and just in our own experience. There's a huge difference between certainty and confidence. The history of Western philosophy has been this kind of quest for absolute certainty when it comes to epistemology and how it is that we know what we know. You know, we want some kind of mathematical proof for the important things in life, like the existence of God, the truth of the Bible, and that sort of thing. But she makes the point that a lot of the time, we'd be better off thinking in terms of confidence 
rather than certainty. Confidence implies a real relationship, which certainty doesn't. I mean, I can be certain that my car is in the driveway. I may not be confident that it's going to start when I want it to. In the same way, you know, sometimes a person can be certain that God is there, but still lack the confidence that he's a loving heavenly father. In uh, her book, This Christian Philosopher, she tells a story about one of her students, and like her, he was a Christian believer, he's a theological student, but he had become so fixated on this quest for certain knowledge that he kind of lost sight of the need to be confident in God. And his spiritual life suffered as a result. This is what he said. It started out as a kind of emotional dryness. I felt as if I wasn't feeling very passionately about the things I ought to feel passionately about. I began to ask, what evidence of the truth of Christianity is there in my life? The answers I had given to others now seemed pat. I began to wonder if what I believed was really all a sham, that I went on believing it not because I knew it was real, but because I couldn't face living without the hope. So this uh, student, he wound up taking a break from his uh, seminary degree, uh, and he went to England to work on a falcon farm. Didn't know there were such things. How deep do you plant a falcon? Anyway, one weekend he found himself in Oxford. Uh, He was sitting in the Eagle and Child pub, which was the one where C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and their friends met together as the Inklings to talk about the Christian faith and literature and whatever they were interested in. And so the student, uh, he'd been working on this uh, falcon farm, and he found himself mulling over uh, Yeats' poem, The Second Coming. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. So here's a guy working on a falcon farm, reading a poem about the falcon being unable to hear the falconer. And he begins writing down on a scrap of paper all of his thoughts. I feel like the falcon. I'm in the eagle and the child in Oxford. It's the inkling's old pub. I wish they were here to echo the falconer's voice. What do I believe anymore? Why do I believe it? If I strip everything away, remove the peripheral, do I still believe? If I believe in truth that can be known in part... How do we know? It's that question of epistemology all over again. Eventually, he came through these struggles that he was going through, but he had to recognize that part of the problem was that he was seeking this kind of abstract, certain knowledge about things instead of seeking a confident knowledge in God. And this is what he said. I came to see how much my struggles had to do with certainty. When I thought about all my experiences knowing, knowing God or knowing anything, I saw that I had been pursuing certainty. That's why the answers had come to feel pat. My answers constantly fell short of the ideal of certainty. But I came to see that I could offer answers with confidence. It was an act of integrity, not to wait for certainty, but to speak with confidence of the patterns of my life, even though I might be mistaken. 
I regained my ability to articulate why I believe in Christ. That's very philosophical, and that can be quite a mouthful or an earful, I realize. It may sound fairly uh, esoteric or abstract, dry to you. Maybe you haven't struggled with the question of knowing uh, or knowing God the way this student did or the way that Christian philosopher did or the way that I have uh, and, in fact, uh, the way the preacher of the book of Ecclesiastes has. He's also struggling with the things that he wants to know. He wants to know with certainty, but that certainty eludes him so often. There's one thing that he does know with confidence, and that's that the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. And there's a world of confidence in that. There's a reassurance in that. You know, there's so much that we don't understand, um, so much that we cannot prove with 100% certainty. We don't know what God's doing in our own lives. We don't know what he's up to in the world at large. We don't know how our own lives are going to turn out. But if we're in his hands, we can know that it's going to turn out all right. Brothers and sisters, know that you are in his hands and be confident in that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can truly be confident in you for um, when we look around, we know uh, things do fall apart. The center does not hold. The world that we see changes and uh, things uh, indeed uh, fall apart and fall down. And yet you remain, Lord, unshakable, secure, certain, uh, unchanging in your goodness and in your mercy. So, Lord, help us to have confidence in you, uh, even when uh, we are in the same situation as uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, aware of how little we know, or when we're like uh, that uh, professor or that student uh, struggling about these same issues. Lord, help us to always know that you are the one uh, sustaining us. Help us to know that we are in your powerful hands. Grant that confidence, uh, grant that reassurance by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.